Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. You know, Problematic Women is your biggest source for issues pertaining to strong, independent women and college football. Uh, Lauren, I think you got uh, the last part of that wrong. We are not uh, a college football source of news. I know, Virginia, but it's so exciting. Just today, it's really good. Just some, It'll be some water cooler talk. <laughs> Lauren, no one is even working in the office to have a conversation <laughs> around the water cooler right now. <laughs> well, um, uh, it'll make really good Zoom Happy hour talk? Okay. All right. We'll make it quick, though, because we have, like, a really awesome full show today. <laughs> okay. I can do it. Over the weekend, despite some scheduling rumors going around, it was pretty much assumed by everyone that it was just a matter of time until the college football season was either canceled or postponed until spring due to COVID-19. But late Sunday, Clemson superstar QB quarterback Trevor Lawrence tweeted, hashtag we want to play. And that hashtag caught on with lots of other players, athletic directors, and coaches. This really breathed life in that maybe the season could happen. You see, unlike the NFL, there's not one commissioner who sets policies for all the teams. Each conference ultimately and really university makes decisions on what they're going to do. So in theory, some teams could sit out while others would play. The viral tweets didn't save the season for everyone. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 have both decided to delay their schedules, and it's unclear if teams from those conferences will join others or if other conferences will also make major scheduling changes. Those in favor of keeping the season argue that players are safest in their team's bubble, being supervised, getting tested, having access to great health care. There's so much more, but it's just really interesting to watch right now. These kids have, in most cases, already been on campus for a few months, practicing without you know, actually wearing pads and having contact with one another on the football field. But most importantly, there's some hope that college football can happen in the fall. You know, I really want everybody to be safe. But, Virginia, I just really want everything normal. And I would just love a fall where, you know, everybody can go and watch a game or, or stay home and watch a game. You know, it's just something that, that my family has done for years. And, and these boys have worked really hard to make it to one of the biggest stages besides the NFL in football. So how did I do? You did well, Lauren. I'll, I'll give you that. That was a good summary. No, I, a lot of that information, um, I didn't know. And I, I'm, I feel like I would maybe be a little bit of a hypocrite to say I'm a fan of Trevor Lawrence because I don't really follow him closely, but my brother-in-law is like a diehard Clemson fan. So everything I know about college football, I know from him. So, no, it's it's interesting. And, you know, college football, it is such kind of an iconic American tradition to every fall gather with friends, gather with family, and just enjoy uh, watching these college guys play. And, you know, so many of them, this has been their dream for so long. So, Lauren, I'm with you. I hope that at least some of these teams get to play this fall. Um, but I'm going to cut you off because I know that you could keep talking football for the entire show. So, Lauren, what do we have queued up for today? Up on today's problematic women are progressive universities to blame for the radical agenda we are seeing carried out on the streets of Portland and other American cities. Madison Brashears, a recent Berkeley graduate, joins us to discuss. Plus, we highlight the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative and the incredible work they are doing to support women around the world. And author Kimberly Ells joins the show to discuss the global campaign to crush the traditional family that has infiltrated the United Nations. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. First, 
First up, we need to tell you about an exciting campaign going right now to uplift women all over the world. The Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative, or WGDP, is a White House initiative spearheaded by Ivanka Trump with the mission to open economic doors for women around the world so they can provide for their families and themselves through safe work. Ivanka Trump just announced on Tuesday that the initiative will reach 50 million women from all over the world by the year 2025. There are three main ways the WGDP plans to help women all around the world. First, through enhanced workforce development. Secondly, by expanding opportunities for entrepreneurship. And finally, by ensuring economic equality for women under the law. We're so excited that right here at the Heritage Foundation, we're engaging on these issues and supporting the work of the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. Just yesterday, Heritage hosted a virtual event with four of the official leaders of the initiative. If you missed it, you can find it on the events page on the Heritage website. But we want to play just a clip of the remarks for you here today. So just going back to the basics of WGDP, as you know, it was launched last year by President Trump and in 2019 in February through a national security presidential memorandum. So it's part of our our um, regulatory framework now in the executive branch. And it has the three pillars I mentioned, the women prospering in the workforce, and that's focused on training and skills building, and women succeeding as entrepreneurs. This is the entrepreneurship, access to capital um, aspect, and then the enabling, women enabled in the economy. So we have through the first year, we've reached 12 million women um, toward our goal of 50 million women by, by the year 2025. It's a pretty huge goal, but we are on track to meet it, and we're really excited about the progress we continue to make. And we are working really hard through this project to make sure that we're um, increasing opportunities for women for their full and free participation in the economy. And we're partnering with governments, the private sector, um, and, and local communities and women's organizations to help bring women off the sidelines and ensure that they can serve as drivers of economic growth and prosperity in their communities and countries, and including the economic recovery from the COVID pandemic. The key for us, as I said, is this enabling environment and removing these regulatory, legal, and, and other barriers that are keeping women off the on the sidelines and out of the economy. Recently, um, back in February, the White House Council of Economic Advisors issued a report that found that $7.7 trillion in new GDP growth could be created if we worked in those five categories alone and removed the barriers to entry for women. And that is huge. And so when we go in and talk to countries about cooperating with us on WGDP, this is a major data point for us. We're saying you're holding your economy and your country back by continuing to have these laws on the books that don't allow women to fully participate in your economy. And while it's the right thing to do, we're also making sure to argue that it's the smart thing to do. To watch the full event, you can visit heritage.org slash events. Or if listening is more your thing, you can always check out the Heritage Events podcast. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Madison Brashears about the radical far-left agenda that has infiltrated college campuses and why it might be to blame for the chaos we are seeing across America today. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Louie, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. We are joined by Madison Brashears, a graduate of Berkeley and author of the recent medium piece entitled Wake Up. Our cultural crisis is a graduate of the American University. Madison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we're really excited to discuss your piece uh, in just a moment. But first, I want to take a second and just to learn a little bit about you and why you chose to go to Berkeley for your undergrad. You graduated uh, in 2018, but I know that process of choosing a school is a big deal. So why Berkeley? 
You know, I grew up in California my whole life, and California has a great um, public university system, and they're uh, very competitive to get in because the prices are, are relatively low. Um, uh, and, you know, the quality of the education and the reputation of the schools, uh, UCLA, you know, UC, Santa Barbara and Berkeley, of course, um, are all really great options for, you know, kids who are first generation college students like I was or um, kids who are lower income or middle class. Um, so, you know, it was a great deal and I wasn't going to pass up, um, you know, getting one of those spots. Uh, I wasn't really, uh, you know, in touch with. Uh, politics at the time. I didn't really have uh, a clear conception of what my political views were. Um, I'd been told that Berkeley was a bit of a, uh, you know, a crazy place politically, but I, uh, uh, at the time, I didn't take those warnings very seriously at all. And I, even if I did, I didn't uh, think it was something to uh, be too concerned about. Yeah, yeah. And what did you study at Berkeley? So I studied literature. Uh, I've always wanted to be a writer. So that's where I was uh, looking at the time. I'm in law school now, um, but I still, of course, uh, like to write. So That's wonderful. So you started your freshman year, and what were you expecting from your college experience? You know, I, of course, I think every college freshman has really romantic ideas about what college is going to be. Um, I expected to go uh, somewhere where people were going to present a variety of viewpoints, um, in an objective way, and then they were going to allow students um, to come to their own conclusions about uh, what they believed the truth was. Uh, I thought there would be open dialogue. I thought there would be a lot of debate. Um, at first, you know, I accepted what I saw, which was, you know, not, not so much that uh, as or um, proper for university. Um, it wasn't until about my junior year that I started to question the lack of uh, discourse and uh, civil discussion uh, and objectivity going on on campus. So let's talk more about that, because I, I love the first piece of, of this story that you wrote. Again, the, the title of the article is Wake Up, Our Cultural Crisis is a graduate of the American University. And your very first line is, as a 19-year-old to believe I was crazy when I began to suspect that my university was attempting to re-educate me. So can you just explain a little bit about like how how did you begin to think this way and actually kind of come to that conclusion of, wait a second, I think what's going on here is re-education. So the first couple of years, my freshman and sophomore year, I would come home from school and I would uh, just be fighting with my parents all the time. Uh, I came home and thought everyone I knew and loved was absolutely backwards for thinking totally normal things about uh, society, which I had been taught in school um, completely uh, unequivocally, no uh, nuance to these views whatsoever. Uh, and, and they weren't challenged, obviously, um, that, uh, you know, ideas about men and women, ideas about uh, uh, personal responsibility, ideas about history, um, American founding, uh, things like that, which, you know, you take some uh, general ed courses in your first year. They cover a lot of ground. Um, and I was just having a lot of uh, tension with my parents. And I was uh, very naively um, believing that most of the, uh, my elders in my life were, uh, um, you know, mistaken, uh, stupid, and uh, bigoted. Wow. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, I started to think a little bit more critically about what I was being told. And I started to, you know, build up the courage to ask some questions of my professors who were talking to me and becoming concerned why other people weren't asking questions. Um, that I started doing some research of my own on the outside, you know, looking into conservative writers. Uh, particularly, I got pretty interested in the Hoover Institution. So it started with economics. Um, I started listening to that. Um, and then you know, that led to listening to more uh, conservative cultural commentary, uh, which gave me the tools to ask the questions that no one was asking at Berkeley. And the response I got to that made me even just more concerned. So can you maybe give a, a specific example of, uh, you know, an area where you challenged one of your professors and what their response was to your questions? So I took a uh, class in legal sociology. I mean, from the titles, you can probably guess that 
I should have known what I was getting into. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I clearly did not. Um, but that is the class that I mentioned in my piece um, where the professor, uh, without any you know, background information, encouraged the entire class to go out and protest the arrest of a student um, who we didn't know any of the details uh, about, about the arrest. Um, and save me and one other student, everyone joined. Um, and it was a very confusing situation. I felt strangely compelled to go to please my professor and to not uh, invite the ire of the other students or the suspicion of the other students. Um, but I felt also conflicted because I didn't know the circumstances of the arrest and I felt strange protesting something which I um, didn't know the details of. Um, so in that class particularly, there were a lot of strange confrontations. Um, particularly, we had a class on um, policing and um, wealth disparity, uh, particularly among in racial communities. Um, between racial communities. And uh, there was one point where the professor was advancing a theory that um, the reason why more arrests occurred in certain areas or in certain communities is because there were more police there um, to you know, apprehend such crimes or seek out such crimes. Uh, at one point, just out of sheer curiosity, I raised my hand and said, well, how do you square that with rates of homicide in those communities? Is it that a homicide homicides are occurring in the other communities as well, but they're being unresolved. Yeah. <laughs> the, the bodies are never being found. Um, and uh, he essentially dodged the question and uh, moved on. But it was uh, very awkward. I felt very uh, isolated from my peers. Definitely wasn't a question that, that people thought was appropriate to ask. Um, and uh, that pretty much encapsulates the entire <laughs> the entire experience I had at Berkeley outside of uh, very artistic literature classes. Um, wow. Any time uh, any kind of historical or philosophical uh, topic was discussed, it, it became very polarized very quickly. So your freshman year, you kind of started a little bit to, you know, buy in to what you were being taught and you had these arguments with your parents when you went home. But then you said, you know, sophomore year, you kind of began to question things um, that tends to not exactly be often what we see, though. Usually, you know, we see quite frequently that young people enter college and they kind of take the bait and then they just continue walking down that very progressive road of thinking. What was the difference for you? What switch that made you begin to think, wait a second, I'm actually not sure that this is the truth? Yeah, so it, it actually was more around my junior year, but uh, yeah, I was very, I had that conflict with my parents for a long time. Um, strangely, though, all my friends were on the same path. They had also started their freshman year, and they also bought into all these very similar ideas. So I was doing great among my friends. They were having great, <laughs> very one-sided discussions, and then we were all going home and berating our parents. So, <laughs> but around junior year, yeah, that was the uh, time when I started to become interested in economics, as I, as I mentioned. And I was listening to Russ Roberts from Hoover Institution. And he would have on some uh, heterodox speakers who would kind of open the door to me to some other ways of thinking about the world. And then, of course, 2016 and the lead up to 2016, I started to see some really concerning behavior come about on campus. It became a very intolerant, very hostile environment. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Hillary. I didn't feel comfortable uh, or, or, or voting for either at the time. Um, but uh, it became dangerous to take a political position that wasn't um, on the left at Berkeley during that period. There was one instance where someone wrote Trump, 20, Trump 2016 uh, in chalk on the uh, mall, you know, something mm -hmm. that political groups do all the time. And it was investigated at Berkeley, which we all found out of, found out about through email uh, as some form of hate crime uh, wow. against minorities on campus. So it, it uh, became very clear to me uh, that something was wrong. And then of course the riots that would break out uh, also in the, in the up lead, the lead up to the election. 
was probably the watershed moment for me. Wow. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about those riots? What exactly that looked like and what it was like being a student on campus during that time? Sure. So in my journey that I was having, my intellectual journey that I was having at the time, I had flirted with uh, joining the much maligned, much ostracized group on campus, Berkeley College Republicans. Um, I wasn't uh, brave enough as those uh, those brave souls to, uh, you know, uh, publicly identify with the group, but I would attend meetings um, just to get some kind of perspective on what um, the other side of the conversation was. Um, and they had decided that they were, go- they, had, they invited uh, speakers and that was pretty much their main contribution on campus was bringing on people, bringing people into school uh, who would say something different. Um, but they had had this great idea in the lead up to 2016 that they were going to bring on firebrands to, you know, shake things up because of the intolerance that they were seeing. And they wanted to test Berkeley, which had, you know, has, has touted this, this uh, notion of being the bastion of free speech um, on college campuses. Um, so they were going to test it and they were going to invite Milo Yiannopoulos, who at the time hadn't been totally excommunicated from civil society, but was kind of uh, <laughs> still out there, uh, you know, causing trouble. So we decided to invite him. And um, in the lead up, there's, we get lots of emails and it appears there's going to be some problems that people are protesting already. There's signs doxing some of the members of uh, Berkeley College Republicans, putting their personal information, their number, calling them fascists and Nazis. Um, so it's looking like something is not going to uh, go well. There's going to be a problem with the event going forward. They couldn't find anyone to volunteer to help facilitate the event. Um, and, you know, I had become very passionate about free speech at the time, probably what uh, motivated me to go to law school. Um, and so I volunteered to uh, help facilitate the event. Uh, that would unfold in a way I could never have imagined. Um, it resulted in hundreds and hundreds of masked rioters, who, uh, many of whom I suspect were students, but uh, no, one, no one was arrested, so that can't be confirmed. Uh, a complete breakdown of law and order. Police were just passively standing by the whole time, uh, allegedly on stand-down orders from uh, the city of Berkeley. Um, while friends and uh, peaceful event attendees who had come to see Milo were beaten up and assaulted right before my eyes. Um, I had never seen anything like it at the time. Uh, It was the most violence I'd ever seen. It was, I'd never been in a situation where I thought police wouldn't protect me um, if someone was hurting me illegally. Um, So that was the first time that's ever happened. Uh, The student center was, set on fire. There was a large fire burning in the center of uh, the the mall and uh, all of the windows of the student center, the Martin Luther King student center, I add, uh, were broken uh, and shattered by uh, by rioters. Um, So it was uh, a pretty uh, transformative moment for me. It was so shocking that uh, it kind of shook me from my complacency uh, with with the situation going on at Berkeley. Wow, <laughs> my goodness, that it, it is. It's almost uh, you know, as you're describing it, it's almost just too wild to believe. It's like wow, that that um, took place. Yeah, on a university campus with police standing by. You know, and universities they've they've always been known as being quite progressive, but you point out that you know this is something different that we've passed just kind of left progressivism and we've really reached Marxism. You know, why is this anti-American rhetoric so enticing to young people? Do you think? Yeah, there's some statistics published by Jonathan Haidt that um, you know show that there's been the really dramatic move leftward since the 1990s. Um, I'm not sure very many people know about that, but it's a, it's a dramatic move that uh, happened out of pace with the rest of America. So in general, people didn't move as quickly to the left as academic, academics did after the 90s. I'm not sure why the 90s uh, you know, made that happen. I know people have a lot of theories, um, but I, I'm not sure which is the correct one. But uh, definitely... I would say from what I've 
from what I've researched, I've done, it, it, it seems different insofar as it combines the economic and social theories of Marxism with the really potent, very uh, academic sounding, uh, vague ideas of postmodernism, which uh, call student young people to question all uh, moral, social, and uh, political norms as constructs in society, right? We all know about, about postmodernism. Um, but I think the most troubling aspect is the, the uh, race and gender identitarianism, which is uh, very successfully uh, inculcated in, in young people. Um, I find it to be very regressive and, and frightening, um, but the intersectional uh, identitarianism combined with the Marxism, which of course has another very attractive aspect to young people, which is lack of uh, a kind of absolution of personal responsibility, a you know endorsement of the idea that um, society is organized on you know arbitrary and unfair bases, and that meritocracy is essentially a lie um, told to keep you know um, wealthy people of usually white men uh, in power. And, you know, it's, it's a potent combination of ideas, which I think has been accepted uh, whole cloth by uh, many, many students, um, which doesn't surprise me, not only because it's attractive, but because if you're only hearing one thing, uh, and it's from professors that you otherwise trust, highly credentialed professors who speak very, uh, uh, authoritatively and, and are supposedly your mentors, um, that's going to be very, very attractive to you. And I, I, it doesn't surprise me at all. So these, you know, 22, 23 year olds graduate with the idea that America is inherently racist, that capitalism is a scheme just to line the pockets of the rich and that America's very founding is even corrupt. What happens when those young people then enter the workforce? Right. I talk about that in my piece uh, in relation to the riots and uh, uh, just discord that we've been seeing for the past several months following the death of George Floyd. Um, I think there's a mistaken assumption by, or at least there was a mistaken assumption by people on the right um, that those kids who came out of college who had been sold these ideas and who had eaten those ideas up um, would be mugged by reality, as uh, a lot of uh, commentators phrase it. That in a workplace, those their intolerance and their sensitivity and their um, wrong views about the way the world works would be eaten out of them, essentially, by you know the more. Uh, <laughs> practical way that uh, the workforce runs and by their bosses and by the real world, by um, things like that. But I think that's clearly not what we're seeing. We're seeing people being fired from major companies for taking, you know, relatively normal political stances, according to the rest of the country. Um, and we're seeing, you know, companies bend the knee to various um, far leftist and postmodern uh, conceptions of society, you know, um, to say that you are not comfortable with the political messaging of Black Lives Matter at a normal American company today is, uh, I think people are, are scared to, to speak out about anything like that. And so I, I think that, unfortunately, conservative commentators might have been wrong about uh, their idea that, that uh, the real world uh, would, uh, would reform college students after they, they got out of school. Um, I'd say in my piece that uh, they haven't been mugged by, by reality, but they've set out on a mission to mug reality itself. And that seems to be what I've, what I've observed. So then are universities more or less, I guess, to blame for you know, what we're seeing across America right now in cities like Portland? You know, I do think they are responsible for much of what we're seeing insofar as 
university, as, as we encourage more and more children to go to university out of high school, it's now almost, you know, uh, a requirement to, to tell children that they, they need to go to college. That's the way you succeed. Uh, it's become, you know, a form of, and now that the university has become a seminary school for the, uh, for the left, for leftist politics, um, of course, I don't understand how you wouldn't uh, be concerned that the people coming out of college are the people that are going to hold the highest and most prestigious positions in society, be it in politics, be it in industry, be it in um, probably most importantly in, in culture and media. Um, they're the people who are going to be dictating the norms to the rest of, of society. And they are also the youngest. Uh, they're the ones that will be, uh, you know, uh, incumbent in those positions for the longest time. And as they become increasingly more radical, uh, we're setting ourselves up for a future, at least, you know, a lifetime for each class that comes out of, uh, of that kind of, uh, those kind of views dominating our culture. And so I think we're uh, exceedingly too sanguine about the effect that the universities have on the rest of our society. And there's no, no basis in fact for the idea that those ideas are confined to the university or that they, you know, are an aberration that uh, just is occurring on the university campus. They're, they're bleeding out into the rest of the world and they're going to, they're going to continue unless we, uh, do something to reform the universities. So Madison, for those listening who are either college students or they're getting ready to go to college or maybe to send a kid to college, what advice would you give to them, you know, as they're maybe sitting in, in classes with obviously uh, very progressive and even, even Marxist professors? Are, are there resources they should be turning to or conversations they should be having? What would you say to them? I would say no Pick your battles for sure. There's some battles that aren't worth fighting. The fact of the matter is we've let it we've let it go so far at the university where some at some point it might be in your best interest to get your good grades and get out of there. Um, same time, I think if there is a resource on campus, um, which I know a lot of campuses have, you know, Young Americans for Freedom, uh, uh, College Republican uh, clubs on campus, um, you can join them. Um, be around other people who are open to, you know, talking about different views on, on, on certain issues, which your, your school uh, tends to regard as orthodoxy. I think there's some merit to the idea of keeping your head down, but at the same time, uh, I think students should be curious. They should question their professors um, insofar as, you know, it, it doesn't lead to grade discrimination, which is always a fine line to walk. But um, I think if more students were willing to uh, question professors, engage in the dialogue at risk to their own social standing, which was obviously something you have to grapple with, um, that universities would feel uh, less uh, free to uh, pack the, the, uh, the faculty with uh, completely homogenous uh, uh, professors uh, from the left. So. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fine, it's a fine line to walk and every student has to make the decision for themselves. But I also wouldn't encourage students if they, if they got, if they get into a great school, you know, as, and it's a great opportunity for them. Like for me, Berkeley was, you know, I, I'm the first kid in my family to go to college and we cannot have afforded for me to go to a private school. Um, they shouldn't let politics or let things like that get in the way of them going to a school like that. If, you know, I think, uh, as long as they stay strong and, and uh, you know, uh, demand uh, facts, uh, I don't think there should be uh, the, the political, the dominant political ideology on campus shouldn't be an impediment to them getting uh, the credential that, um, you know, they earned. Madison, thank you so much. We just really appreciate your boldness uh, in speaking out on this issue and uh, being willing to talk about a subject that is challenging. Uh, so thank you so much my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Kimberly Ells, a policy advisor for Family Watch International and author of the book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. We discuss how an anti-traditional family doctrine has infiltrated the United Nations. 
But before we get to the interview, I have to tell you all about the perfect way to educate yourself on the big policy issues facing our nation today, the Heritage Foundation webinars. These are information-packed webinars. Heritage is hosting multiple events online almost every day of the week, ranging from discussions about the future of our economy, America's relationship with China, and even the dangers of revisionist history. You can find all of the upcoming webinars by visiting the Heritage Foundation website and clicking on events. I am joined by Kimberly Ells, a policy advisor for Family Watch International and author of the new book, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Now, you have a really, really interesting background, which includes work that you've done at the UN and work that really ultimately led you to write this book. Could you begin just by sharing a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in issues pertaining to, to children and the family? Sure. So I several years ago, I think it was 2013, mm-hmm. um, I found a document online in the course of just research and so forth, and it was a document all about and children's sexual rights and promoting sexual rights for children. And up to this point, I didn't know that that existed in the mainstream. And I, I, as a mom, I was very concerned about that. And just as a citizen, I was concerned about that. And so um, that's what led me down the road to being involved with family advocacy, as well as fighting the children's sexual rights agenda. And what I mean by children's sexual rights is this document that was published by International Planned Parenthood Federation, presented sexuality to kids and to youth as if it was their human right, as if um, pursuing sexual pleasure in and of itself was a human right for everybody, including youth, um, not a, not connected to childbearing, not connected to uh, long-term commitment, not connected to family really in any way, and um, that it's just sexual pleasure is just a right for all people. And so, you know, many people think that feel that that's problematic, as I did. And that led me down this down this road. Wow. So then take us a little bit further down that road. Uh, you discover you know, this kind of agenda being pushed forward of uh, telling kids you can have sex. It's your right to have sex. And then as as you continue to kind of pursue this idea of, wait a second, no, that that's not that's not right. That doesn't line up with maybe my traditional values. Uh, where does that road continue to take you? Well, very soon I was able to connect with like minded people and I discovered Family Watch International who would who had already been fighting the children's sexual rights agenda at the international level for some time. And so I immediately wanted to jump on board. And um, that's when I became involved, you know, internationally at the United Nations and saw for myself that not only was this agenda being pushed by International Planned Parenthood and other organizations, but it it seemed to be systemic at, at the United Nations. And um Many of the United Nations agencies, such as UNESCO, UNICEF, UNFPA, um, are all on board with this. And it's somewhat chilling to, to see it. Now, that I think is one of the most fascinating things that you have really highlighted so well in your book is this agenda at an international level that you went to the UN with this, this idea that I'm going to work to protect children and families and and guard them from sexual predators. And what you actually found is that within the UN, there's this kind of network of connection between socialists and, and feminists that are working with insiders at the UN to further this progressive message. Can, can you tell us a little bit more of that, uh, of just regarding that connection between socialists, feminists, and the UN? Sure. So there's a huge socialist presence at the United Nations. There's a huge feminist presence at the United Nations. Uh, sexual activism is rampant. Um, now, I, I will say not everything that goes on at the United Nations is necessarily bad. And many people who work there have good intentions. But the problem is that the it appears that many of the agencies have been corrupted by these various agendas. And um, International Planned Parenthood specifically has a huge presence at the United Nations and very frequently partners with UN agencies to sp- sponsor events, to push forward programs, and so forth. 
the current Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, is the former president of Socialist International. And I don't think those things, that's widely known. And there are many other examples that I give in the book, open socialists who are in leadership positions at at the United Nations. And so um, those of us who who value uh, free markets and um, representative government and, and different things, that's very, that's very concerning. So we're talking with Kimberly Ells about her new book, The Invincible Family, While the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. And Kimberly, we're talking about this progressive message that we're seeing uh, really being pushed by uh, international leaders and specifically by the UN. Could you just tell us kind of in, in a nutshell, what is the agenda here? Well, the agenda broadly for the United Nations is to be the world governing body. That's not very hidden. In fact, just last week, uh, the head of the UN, the Secretary General, said that a new model for global governance is on the way. Those are his words. And he said that part of that is redistributing wealth and power, which is a very socialist idea. And so part of this, so how does the sexual agenda fit into that? Well, it fits in in a huge way because um, the power, there's, there's an inherent power in the family, which isn't often given the, the recognition that it should be, but it's there. And fathers and mothers in concert produce life, they produce their children, and then they raise their children and they teach their children the values that they want them to live by. And so if there's if there's an outside source outside the family who that wants to really take control and have more power, what do they need to do? They need to break down the unit of the family in order to usurp the power that the family naturally has. And and it makes sense because as anyone knows, anyone who wants to have power in the world knows that you have to get to the young and guess where the young begin. They begin in the family. And so that puts the family and often particularly the mother as well as the father in a great position of influence. Because if you influence one child at a time and their beliefs, you influence the world. And so when you present sex to children, it is not connected to family, even though sex is the very thing that creates people and creates families and family connection, then you win a huge victory for dismantling the family. If you can couch sex as something that is simply just a fun activity that's not family centric, then you've you've really gotten to the root of, of weakening the family and and helping children focus on their own pleasure rather than on their responsibilities in society, seeking out stable commitments and seeking marriage and family. And so these all these things are very much connected, but they all lead to weakening and even just trying to destroy the family so that the power that resides there can be usurped. Well, and another way that you talk about how the UN is sort of trying to almost reframe the family and specifically motherhood is that they have talked about uh, motherhood as almost being like a, a burden, like, you know, poor, poor women that they aren't compensated financially for raising children. And, and isn't that this travesty? Could you explain that a little bit further? Because I just find that really bizarre. Right. So yes, there's this, there's, when I first was involved with the United Nations, there was a, a resolution put forward. This was just several years ago. Um, basically framing any work that is not done for money as a great travesty and as oppression. And so of course, parenthood, both mother and fatherhood fall under that umbrella. We're not necessarily paid for doing that work. We, and so, um, this document that was negotiated, uh, basically told women, you know, you are oppressed if you're caring for your own children. And so the grand solution that was presented in in the lines of this document is that nations should seek to establish national care centers for anyone that needed care, sick people, old people, and of course, children. And to those of us who value the family and see that it is the linchpin of society, that's that's very concerning. And especially the, the very idea that that only work done in the public sphere for money is valuable is just untrue. And and anyone who has been a parent recognizes that. So how do you think we got to this place? Because 
obviously, you know, as a society as a whole, not just Americans, but around the world, that, you know, family has existed since the beginning of time. Um, and we've seen throughout history that often, you know, the role of, of the mother was highly valued. And, you know, during the Victorian era, there was this strong rooted idea that, you know, women sort of helped to instill uh, values, um, often Christian, Judeo-Christian values into their children, and that that was so critical for creating a strong society. What happened to get us off on this track to where now world leaders are saying, women, you're essentially oppressed if someone's not handing you a paycheck for changing your kids' diapers. It really is quite amazing, isn't it? Because when most women give birth and they see their beautiful child before them, the first thought is not, who's going to pay me to take care of this, right? Their first instinct is to want to care for the child. They love the child most almost in every case. And so how did we get to this point? I think it's a very valid question. And I think it's the intertwining links of socialism and feminism, and then more recently, sexual radicalism. And and um, socialism is perennially appealing to people, I think, because of it promises equality, which of course is a valid concept, equality in itself. All men are created equal. There's a certain inherent equality. Um, but Socialism corrupts that idea, and it has from the very start um, framing the family as an enemy to equality because different different situations exist in in different families right and and that's okay but if you're going to take socialism to its full conclusion, you have to in a sense achieve equality by destroying the family so that there can't be all these differences being being taught. And so I think the doctrine of equality has been corrupted and that's, uh, that is a, still appealing to people. Um, also, women's rights, of course, virtually everyone is on board with basic women's rights that have largely been achieved. You know, uh, basic human rights, legal rights, wearing pants, all these things are great. But again, feminism, modern feminism, has told women that there is no power in the family, which there is. And to too many women, of course, if you're told that, you're going to look elsewhere. And so um, the, these efforts have kind of combined to convince uh, society, and particularly women, that if they want to have influence and power, that they need to look outside the family and also convince people at large if we want to have equality. And if that is the grand goal, then we can't have, have families. And so... It's a cooperative effort, and I think these these uh, movements are gaining steam, unfortunately. And it's time to return to revering the family, seeing the power of the family, and taking it by the reins. So who are the key players that are really promoting and, and pushing this anti-family agenda, whether they be leaders at, at the UN or, or within certain groups around the world? Well, I mentioned International Planned Parenthood Federation. Uh, that is continues to be a huge player. Um, CICUS is, you know, kind of also heavily involved. UNFPA, the United Na that United Nations agency, is heavily involved in population efforts, but population control efforts. They've taken upon themselves to manage the population of the world. That's what they see as their as their job. Um, when really that responsibility resides in families, with men and women together, and so. There's huge pressure from from that angle, um, as well as other UN agencies. The World Health Organization has its its hands in the pie as well. You mentioned that you're seeing you, you refer in your book that you're seeing this uh, this really anti-family messaging make its way into schools and into education curriculum. Explain what exactly you mean by that, and how how and where we're seeing that take place. Okay, yeah, really important. Um, UNESCO uh, sees itself as the basically czar of education for the whole world, and they've taken it upon themselves to manage the education efforts of the globe, and they've been driving towards that goal for many, many years, and they have made great strides recently. So there's UN agencies at the top. They've established the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which embedded in those are a lot of socialistic, feministic, sexually radical ideas, not overtly, you have to look carefully, but the, through interpretation, these things can are there. Then there's the various organizations, including the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, 
um, and many other. I won't go into all the details right here. It's better to read it in the chapter in the book. But but essentially, these big agencies partner with smaller organizations and agencies on the national and then the local level. And this is happening in, in my conservative state. And one of the key players there that's specifically mentioned in UN documents about education is the Global Partnership for Education. And if you look, if you get looking closely into that, as I did, it's a very, it follows the communist model for education to a T. They want schools and they have lovely graphics showing all of this. They want schools to be a full service care center, essentially, for children that they provide for their nutritional needs, their education needs, their medical needs, even, even they mentioned spiritual needs in, in some of the UN documents. And so um, that's concerning to, to those of us who are worried about local control and local curriculum. And there's many intertwining pieces of this that I explain in the book, but it's largely driven by digital uh, curriculum and digital learning. And one special, especially concerning thing is that through the the OECD sponsors these uh, assessments for kids, and these have been ongoing for some time now, and they've kind of morphed from being academic assessments to being to assessing what they call social and emotional skills. But what they really mean by that is social and emotional attitudes, like children's attitudes about social issues. And it's been very savvy the way they've put this into place, which I explain in more detail in the book. And so Many schools, even unknowingly at this point, are infiltrated with with these UN ideologies. And if they're not yet, it's in the works. So pleased to be talking with Kimberly Ells, author of The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. And Kimberly, right now, we are at a pivotal point in American history. It really, gosh, I don't know what the history books are going to write about the year 2020, but um, I can only imagine <laughs> we're, we're seeing riots in the streets that are costing cities millions of dollars in, in damage and statues are being torn down. And there just seems to be, in general, this complete disregard for for authority, whether that's law enforcement or political leaders or even parents. And you draw a connection between the unrest that we're seeing in our streets today and this mission to kind of undo the traditional family. Can you explain that? Yeah. So we've been talking about these global forces and things coming down, and those are very real, and we need to look into those and, and push back against them. But but as you say, if we if we look closer to home, we see all this mayhem unraveling around us. And it's alarming to watch. And while there are many forces at play, I think the major force at play is the breakdown of the family. I've often said that we all, when back when things were normal, even, we all sit and wait in lines at the grocery store and we all learned those kinds of things because our mothers taught us to, because our dads taught us to. And it used to be the, the expected place of parents to teach self-regulation, to teach patience, to teach self-control, to teach basic principles, to teach the lessons of history that, that support all of these good and positive pr and productive characteristics. And I think, I think we have let go of that far too much. And of course, I'm not the only one saying that, but we, I think we have to face the fact that the chaos we're seeing around us springs largely from our abandonment of our families. And not, I'm not just talking about deadbeat dads or something. I'm talking about ceding the power of parenthood to other places, to other sources, whether it be, you know, schools or care centers or other things. H have we been paying attention at home? And I think so, in some cases, the answer has been not enough. And so if we, I think if we want to pull ourselves out from this scary place that we're in, we absolutely have to refocus on the family, starting with our families. And then from there, ma making sure we're teaching our kids what we think they need to know, not what somebody else thinks is politically correct for them to know, but what we believe and why. And then to, as a society and as a, as a state, um, support the family. E even the United Nations documents themselves are peppered with references to, to the family. Even the Universal Declaration on Human Rights says that the family is the core unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and by the state. And I think we've fallen far 
too far away from that. We need to return to that and recognize that the family is the building block of society. And if we're not going to use that building block anymore, society is going to crumble. So tell our listeners where they can find the book. Right. Thank you. It's The Invincible Family. You can go to invinciblefamily.com as well as Amazon has it there, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you, you find books. So Kimberly, before I let you go, one of our favorite questions to ask guests on this show um, is whether or not they consider themselves a feminist. And we always love asking this question uh, because we get very, very different responses uh, across the board, but uh, would love to hear from you whether or not, uh, considering the work that that you have done and, and are doing, if you identify with that word feminist, if that's something that you feel like, you know, you want to change the way that that word is, is perceived? Uh, no, not necessarily. I, you'd have to call me a familyist. <laughs> I like that. A good answer. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. It's that time again, time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week, Madison, you were so kind to stay on the line, uh, and we are so thrilled to crown you our Problematic Woman of the Week. Congratulations, Madison. <laughs> I'm honored. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to just ask you kind of a, a life advice question. As you have uh, completed your undergrad and now you're in law school, what is maybe um, one piece of advice, whether it be about, you know, managing the demands of school or kind of looking forward towards career that you have just found really, really helpful in in navigating uh, the various demands on, on your time, whether that be with family or friends and, and schoolwork? I would say probably one not very uh, related to you know, the actual uh, work I'm doing. Um, but whenever I feel overwhelmed, I guess, by my school or uh, uh, work, um, one thing that has really helped me has been rem the reminder that the antidote to anxiety is gratitude. So I think whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed and just chaotic or start to become too uh, absorbed by the idea that, you know, my grades or my uh, accomplishments define who I am and uh, and that, you know, making any kind of mistake in that area uh, is fatal to my to my purpose. Um, I often remember just how blessed and privileged I am to live in this country, to be in law school. Um, I, I go to Antonin Scalia Law School on a, on a, on a full scholarship, and I'm just incredibly grateful for that. And uh, I think everyone uh, can apply that to their lives. And it, it really, really helps when it comes to anxiety and, and, and stress. Yeah, oh, I love that. I've certainly found that exact same thing to be true, but when you feel all the pressure and just kind of the anxieties of whether it's, you know, of the day or just kind of of your life growing, um, it's so helpful and alleviates so much stress and pressure just to take a minute and actually think about like, oh, I can be thankful for this and this and this. So thank you for sharing that. That's awesome advice. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It was really fun. So on last week's Twitter poll, we asked you, do you use TikTok? And 91% of you responded, never, not today, China. And I'm really wondering where all our TikTok users are at. And Virginia, you know, I got a little bit of hate mail for my joke about wanting the government to ban it because that'll be the only thing that gets it off my phone. Really? <laughs> I did. You know, that was a joke. Total joke. <laughs> wow all right well we do appreciate hearing from you all and yeah please write in let us know your thoughts and opinions and i have a feeling that way more of our listeners uh use tiktok than actually responded in that poll uh, and lauren could probably use a little love and support so hey if you're a tiktok <laughs> user let her know <laughs> well this week's twitter poll from the top of the show do you miss college football? The choices are yes. I don't know what to do with my Saturday. 
I hope no one chooses this one. I'm more of an NFL fan. Yeah, so that's going to be my selection. <laughs> <laughs> or third one, not a big football fan. The poll will be hosted on the Daily Signal Twitter page and make sure you are following the Daily Signal on Twitter if you aren't already so that you can see that poll come out every Thursday. Lauren and I will also share it on our own Twitter pages. That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week and weekend. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.